Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. On this episode, we begin our summer reading special with a conversation about Jackie Robinson. Last Friday, Major League Baseball celebrated the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers, an event of major significance in American history, not just baseball history. Now, there have been many wonderful books and movies produced about Jackie Robinson and his life, his fight, and his legacy. The latest comes from acclaimed author Kostya Kennedy. Two of Kennedy's previous books, 56, Joe DiMaggio and The Last Magic Number in Sports, and Pete Rose, An American Dilemma, were New York Times bestsellers and won the Casey Award for Best Baseball Book of the Year. This time in a book published this month by St. Martin's Press, Kennedy takes a unique look at the life of Jackie Robinson called True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson. This book takes a closer look at four specific years in Jackie's life, his 1946 professional debut in Montreal before he joined the Dodgers, his 1949 MVP season, his final big league season, 1956, and 1972, the year he passed away at just 53 years of age. Kennedy dives deep into these areas to highlight the struggles and the triumphs of Robinson that spread out over a quarter century of his public life, and now, almost 50 years since his death, show the world how remarkable and influential his life continues to be. For a closer look at Jackie Robinson, here is my conversation with the author of True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, Kostya Kennedy. So Kostya, my first question really is, Jackie Robinson has no shortage of documentation on his life, so why did you choose him and now to uh, to do another biography on him? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a couple of reasons. It's on a personal level. It's a story that's always been sort of grabbing at me. Um, I've been gathering string on it for a long time. Obviously, many of us are aware of Jackie's story since the time we walk into the business or well before. Um, in my case, I was a young kid when I heard about Jackie from my mom. And about eight years ago or so, I did a story for Sports Illustrated on Rachel Robinson. Um, and that kind of began further pushed along the, the notion of seeing a little bit of a different 
different path in. And that was really it, Sweeney. I felt that there was a different way in that there is some, obviously there's plenty of um, work done on him and some excellent work. Um, and I felt that there was a different way to look at him that could bring something new to the table. And I also think that our perspective, yours, mine, the reader, everyone's view changes. Um, so every book is it's in part a book for its time. And, and that's what I, what I hope to do with this book. It's funny, as I was reading it, there were a number of things that, you know, that I learned about Jackie Robinson. I'm thinking, you know, it's probably been a while since I read a book about Jackie Robinson. And it's, it's, I felt to me all of a sudden the light went off for me. It's probably important for figures like this to every once in a while, get a fresh new look at it because there's a whole new generation of people or an older generation like me that probably doesn't know as much about the subject as they should. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, they don't know as much about it. And again, also times have changed. It just feels different reading this book, I hope, uh, in 2022 than it would in 2018 or, or in 2010 or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and, and I think a challenge for me, and, and I've experienced this throughout work, and I think maybe you have a corresponding thing in, in delivering information. I wanted to do a book that if you've never read anything about Jackie Robinson, you get his story. You get a full feeling. You might not get every single detail the way I, I it wasn't aimed to be aimed to be soups to nuts, but you should have a feeling and flavor of the man. Similarly, if you are somebody who knows a lot about Jackie, as I was, of course, you have to, <laughs> any writer to report and research, I really knew a lot as I sat down to write. Um, I'm, I'm still, I think there are sprinkled throughout sort of little treasures or new thing, newly discovered thing that's not necessarily a big blockbuster piece of information, but, but new stories, uh, newly sort of clarified points um, and things like that, that, that I hope um, came through. So you hit on one of the things that I was curious about, you know, that having this come out in 2022, uh, there's a, a, a different backdrop to it. So I'm curious as to how the events of, now listen, this is years in the making for you, I'm sure. And it's just right. published in 2022. But how did the events of 2020 influence the writing and reporting of this book and the perspective of it? I think just really in it, in it I, I don't know that it was any specific thing beyond the mention sort of of the, of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, which had begun before 2020, of course, but which, which ratcheted up then. Um, it's not sort of specific, but it's just sort of a, a feeling and an understanding, a reminder that this, you know, sort of the struggle for civil rights, which has gone back obviously since the 1600s, right? So it, it's been a, basically the story of our country. Um, it, it, then if we look at the sort of more modern, what people talk about as the, as the modern civil rights movement, you know, seeing where Jackie was when he broke in, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was 18 years old and a, a, a theological, studying in a theological uh, seminary at that point. He had not had a public speech. He was not Dr. Martin Luther King, the, the, the mover of society the way he would, of course, become. Um, that's when Jackie breaks in. And then when he retires, and of course, he went on in post-retirement to lead an active civil rights life. But when he retired from baseball, it's 1956, and we're in the middle of the Montgomery bus boycott. So that shows you, and I tried to bring some of this forth in the book, between 1946, when he's a rookie in the, in the minor leagues, the 1956, when he hangs him up from the Dodgers, 
just what happened in this country, right? Such an incredible year and uh, stretch, uh, decade, in some ways even more so than fifty than the mid fifties to the mid sixties, just because all that stuff really started and, and Rosa Parks and, and Dr. King and all that. So powerful times. You mentioned uh, the profile you did on Rachel Robinson. So uh, you had a lot of family cooperation in this project. What was it that you think the family wanted said now uh, about Jackie and his legacy that maybe hadn't before? Well, I, I want to be clear. I did have, I know, I got to know the Robinsons through that story and I did a bunch of, um, did some events uh, with Sharon Robinson over the years, um, moderated, uh, you know, one of the sort of bucket list things. Uh, I got to moderate an event between Sharon and Branch Rickey III, uh, the grandson of Branch Rickey. That was an wow. amazing event. And I've done some work with David, uh, who runs a coffee company out of Africa. That's uh, Rachel and Jackie's son. Um, so it, I've talked to them a lot over the years, but I, this wasn't a book that sort of, they didn't see the book or have any sort of imprint. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they wanted okay. or what they didn't want, uh, quite honestly. Like, you know, I feel like I treated him very fairly and well. At the same time, if there was a point or two to, to examine or to look at, hey, was this really the right decision? Would, could, did Jackie himself express regrets maybe about point A, point B? I wasn't afraid to say that. And I, and I feel like, you know, so, so I don't know, I, I hope and think they would feel it's a strong new portrait of him, but I didn't really take into account what their agenda might have been or not. We, uh, we talk a lot about 1947 and, you know, last week when uh, we had the 75th anniversary celebration of his debut, it's always about 1947. But of the four major years that you study in this book, 1946 is the one you chose, his year in Montreal, his first year as a professional. So that's, uh, that's where he started his journey. And he, you know, he, it could have all gone wrong right then and there. So it's really important to study what happened there. What did you find most enlightening about writing about Montreal and discovering what happened there? Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, we talked earlier about like what, what's new in this book. Certainly the idea that he played in Montreal and spent a year there is known that's not new ground. But I did feel it was a bit underreported that time. People sort of jumped right to 47. Um, I think I, I really realized what a crucial year that was for Robinson and Rachel for the couple uh, in terms of, of having them gather strengths and, and define themselves for the journey ahead. You know, there they were. He was the only, except for a few weeks at the beginning of the season when he had a, a Black teammate, he was the only Black player in an all-white league um, playing home in Montreal, but playing a lot of games in the United States. They played Buffalo, Baltimore, Syracuse, Rochester, Jersey City, all these places. And he became the celebrity, right? So it's minor league ball, but it's not, you know, 2,000 fans in, in you know, in, in a A team and, you know, in, in a small town. There were 25,000 fans, 30,000 fans, especially at home, especially in Jersey City and some of the big places. He got the, the first sense of being a real, a huge celebrity, somebody who the African-American community, community had its hopes on. People would travel for miles and miles to come there. Now, Robinson had been a star as a football player at, at UCLA, so he had a flavor and sense of it, but not like this, not where, you know, the African-American newspapers writing on his first game in the minor league, all of our hopes are on his shoulders and that stuff, right? 
which is also a really interesting thing to think about because it's not just the racism and bigotry which he faced and which was obviously a horrible thing to deal with every day, but also the expectations, even for people who are very much rooting for him, huge, huge expectations. So seeing that, seeing him sort of nestle in in Montreal, where not only were they the only black couple on the block, they also, everybody around them spoke French and they, they didn't speak French. And also Sweeney, seeing, you know, as mentioned, Robinson was a great athlete, um, and had, but he hadn't played all that much baseball. He, he barely played at UCLA. Uh, he played 45 games with the Monarchs. He was still pretty raw in 46. And, and you read through some of the game stories and he throws to the wrong base or, you know, <laughs> makes an ill-advised uh, base running thing, which, of course, people do as veterans, obviously. Yeah. But it was certainly a learning curve. He got better. And, he, and, he, and I think he needed that year, even though skill-wise, he was major league caliber from the start. He refined himself as a ball player pretty, pretty significantly during that year. Well, the year that he had obviously set him up the fact that he was going to make the big league roster in 47. You know, he wasn't some 240 hitting guy who needed another year and needed more seasoning. He was ready. But one of the things that I, I, I talked to people after I'd read this and wondered if this was common knowledge, and I guess it had been reported and it, there are people who know the story, but I'd never heard it. And I found it, you know, quite alarming. The, Baseball writers dinner leading into the 47 season, there's there's a vaudeville style skit put on by the newspaper reporters, um, you know, and it's it's pretty clear from the beginning that as much as he's championed now um, and you know, the media was not on his side back then. And that newspaper, um, the, the BBWA dinner and the skit that they put on shows you right from the beginning the obstacle he was up against. Yeah, you know, and I think, I think, and you certainly know this in the media, um, some media was in one camp, some media was in the other camp, right? So, so you can't necessarily paint the brush, right. but it's definitely resistance. And, and you know, the skit you're, you're talking about is so full of the um, sort of African-American tropes and, and just, just like you cringe just to think about it. But it's also a reminder of like sort of how in vogue that stuff was at that time, right? And people would wear blackface not just on the margins, but on, you know, big TV shows, right? TV was basically just coming in there. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the sort of baseball writers, it, it was, they, they had no problem sort of making fun of the situation. You know, uh, Robinson is portrayed as kind of a, a, a servant and, and Branch Rickey is a master. I, I mean, just, just sort of horrifying. And, and what, what, even more so, I guess, when you saw that some writers after that was like, oh, it was all kind of in good fun. Yeah. And then other writers, and you have to remember exactly who it was. I'm not sure if it was Sam Lacey or who was just like, look, these guys are not, they're not on board. They're not, they're not forward thinking, yeah. you know, at the best, they were hidebound, conservative, blind. At the worst, they were aggressively bigoted. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it's a, it's a uh, amazing thing. And, and, and Jackie, once you got to know Jackie from what everybody said, uh, he still feuded with some people because he could be outspoken, never mind just on racial issues, but just in general, Jackie had, had his opinion, but it was hard not to like absolutely respect him. Uh, he was, you know, as a player and as a person. So I think he began to dispel some of that horrible stuff that was going on early on. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. 
Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 1949 is the year that, you know, he was kind of like unbound where his style of play was in full force. He's an all-star, he's an MVP. Uh, and you're right about that all-star game specifically, it was at Ebbets Field. Uh, but in the middle of all of this, you know, he's testifying before Congress, you know, with the whole uh, Joe McCarthy, un-American, House on american things. And, you know, I think this generation remembers baseball players testifying in front of Congress a little bit differently when you're talking about the PED era and you see guys like McGuire and Sosa standing up there and there's a certain uh, vision of it and kind of the aftermath of what happened. But there's a certain, you know, the way you described it, there's a certain power that Jackie has as he's giving this speech in front of Congress. And it's, it's a complicated speech and it's meaning the way it's been interpreted um, was even back then was kind of complicated, but it's all part of kind of a very odd year where he's cast not just as a great ball player, but kind of part of the social movement too. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. And so at, during those years, the, the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper, and in general, the American communist movement were very pro-integration. They were pro 
civil rights, um, and those were bound together. Um, and Paul Robeson, who was, a, a, of course, a famous uh, Black activist, he'd been an athlete, now he's a famous singer, um, had said, listen, we, we would never, we meaning speaking on behalf of Black American, I can't see Black Americans fighting in a war against Russia when we don't even have the rights at home uh, in America that, that, that uh, Black people have in, in Russia. And Jackie didn't agree with that, although he himself had suffered discrimination in the, in the army. He was very sort of pro-government, pro-American military in that sense, and was like, listen, I know this country has a lot of problems. I would still fight for this country. And so that was identified by the House on American activities. They wanted him to come in and speak sort of to debunk Paul Robeson. But as part of that, when Jackie came in, and now Jackie was, was very much anti-communist, and that was true then, and that was true even in his position with the Vietnam War and throughout his life. But he made, and it's a very eloquent speech if one looks at it, the big headline was, oh, Robinson takes down Robeson. You know, he, he disagrees. And that's what the House on american Activity was looking for, and that's what people capitalized on. That's basically one paragraph in a 23-paragraph speech in which he articulates said, listen, just because a, a communist says it's wrong to discriminate against black people and that we should have uh, equality and integration, doesn't mean they're not right. I don't agree with them as communists, but they're still right, yeah. you know? And, and similarly, you know, we, we have to realize that, that it's also, you can't just, you can't take away those rights and feel that, oh, well, you know, you have some kind of cover because it's not under communism or something. So he gave a real, very, I thought, eloquent speech about, you know, uh, African-Americans simply wanting access to, to the rights, inalienable rights that all citizens should have. Um, but it was a big, you know, and he was, a, he was 30, but he was a very young man in that sense. And he would, that was really his first time speaking out He'd been offered a column that year and he specifically said, no, I don't want to like stir things up yet. I, I don't know if he even thought yet, but no, I don't want to stir things up. Later on, of course, he became much more outspoken, but this was sort of a first wade into the river of uh, public discourse for Jackie. I think you do a really good job of bouncing uh, in between all that stuff to the actual baseball, which, you know, listen, as everybody knows, if he's not a great player, his influence is a lot less. Yeah. And as the, you know, the 49 season goes along, uh, he is clearly one of the best players in the league. If not, he's the MVP of the league. But one of the truly fascinating things is reading about how people described his daring style in the bases. And this is what people have talked about him for years. Listen, I've, I've talked to people about this recently where it's a style of play that, yeah, no one had seen before, but you could see the direct influence. There's a direct line to be drawn from Jackie Robinson to Maury Wills, to Lou Brock, to Ricky Henderson. You know, and that brings us to modern times in just a couple of steps. You can see the direct line of influence there. Yet there was something still unique about Jackie Robinson on the bases, partially because of his football background that you illustrated. Um, people still described it in a way that nobody's described any other baseball player who runs the bases that way. Yeah, he was so daring, uh, as you point out, um, and physical, right? So that gives you pause a minute before you kind of stand in his way. Yeah. Um, one of the great things that they talk about is just the sight of seeing Jackie Robinson um, in a rundown. 
Right, so a rundown is essentially a pretty meh play in baseball. Yeah. You know, the, the guy gets in a rundown, you run straight at him with the ball, and if you're a viewer or a fan, you're pretty much tuning out, all right, let's go to next out, next play. But Jackie was an adventure. Carl Erskine, and, and I wasn't the first person who said this to, but um, described it as like a 12-year-old playing with eight-year-olds. <laughs> great way to, to say it. Like he, he would just make you nervous and make you um, make a mistake. And more, more, more often than one should, would he get out of a out of a rundown? He took the extra base. He stole bases. And you know, in the in the beginning, if you if if you look at things like by today's metrics, right, is it worth it to steal or not? Mm-hmm. He was so aggressive, and he got caught uh, sixteen times in forty. Just picking forty nine, he stole thirty seven bases, but got caught sixteen times. So you would say on the face of it, well, that's not really worth it. A couple of things: twelve of those times were with two outs, right? So the threshold become less. Mm-hmm. With two outs than with um, than with uh, no outs, you steal home. The success rate, I think, I was looking at this on Fangraphs. So I'm just getting nerdy for one second. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 34 percent is all you have to be to make it worth it from two outs uh, with a runner on third, right? So he was well calculated. He only got caught twice uh, when the Dodgers were losing. So he was very intelligent about that. And, and also just the simple fact of him moving on the base path, disrupting a defense, disrupting a pitcher out there, going, going, was so crucial. When he gets later in his career, he becomes also a great, remains a great base, base runner. He's a little less fast. Now he steals 17 base in a year, but only gets caught four times. He steals 12, only gets caught three times. Now his ratio has gone up. I think sometimes people forget like what an intelligent ball player he was. And what an intelligent design the Dodgers had. Like Brant, Branch Rickey was, was, knew what he was doing too. And, and, and Jackie absolutely did. He was like a coach out there. And for the times, um, he was, he was well compensated. You know, in 49.50, he's the highest paid Dodger, which says something. Three years after breaking in, he's the highest paid player on the team. Now, we all know that baseball owners being who they were back in the 50s, you know, they still, you know, controlled it to a great degree. Didn't pay the players their true value. But to think that race wasn't a factor in how he got paid relative to other players on his own team, I thought was pretty telling. Yeah, no, it, I mean, and I, I have to say that the Dodgers seemed to be good, good at that, really good at that. You know, he was the, he was the best playing team, the best paid player. There were there was a year early on when Pee Wee was the best player. Then Roy Campanella, another African American player, he became the best player on the team, best paid player. Sorry, uh, and they basically paid for performance. Now, listen, overall, Sweeney, the Dodgers uh, didn't love to part with a buck, uh, so <laughs> none of that. Guys, well, guys like Green, Hank Greenberg and Joe DiMaggio and Musil, they all made more. Mm-hmm. Um, and this wasn't a racial thing. This was a where they played. And mm-hmm. if you think about what Robinson in particular was doing for the turnstile, he could have gotten paid sure. e- even more. Like there are very, very few players that have such a direct impact. Here's 5,000 fans coming to this game who simply wouldn't have come last year, right? So, um, but no, he was, and Jackie also, I want to say, he was not a player who would ever hold out. You know, he'd kind of make his case and then come to an agreement. He wanted to play ball. They, they, they got there. Um, yeah, so, but he was fairly compensated and was always, you know, kind of grateful and, and happy for that opportunity.
Something else that you highlighted really well as you get into 1956, his final year, and 72, uh, the year he passed, and everything kind of in between, his post-playing career, you know, the activism that really started, you know, um, could really be focused on with his playing days behind him. But there's there's some things in there that probably, you know, would surprise people too, because his political leanings are not what we would have, we would expect in 2022, whether, you know, whether it's, you know, the Kennedy-Nixon or the letters he exchanged with Martin Luther King Jr., which, you know, you illustrated as well. There's something to be learned by looking at those things and, and getting like a full gauge on his personality there too. Yeah, no, uh, Robinson was very much his own man, you know, and one of the, the title of the book being true and one of the reasons I, way I explained it, he was true to the mission and true to the effort. He was a man who was very true to his conviction, but he was also true to his contradictions. He wasn't necessarily the case that if you believe, if you fell on a, a Republican or a Democrat, you believe, check it off. These are my 15 beliefs and the other side believes that. He would sort of cross the aisle, so to speak, in terms of what he believes. So when you talk about Nixon, um, I think on many issues, he would have supported John F. Kennedy. But the fact that the Dixiecrats in those days, in 1960, George Wallace, Bull Connor, so many other down south Democrats who were staunch segregationists had such an influence in, in the Democratic Party and John F. Kennedy, still felt beholden, still felt he needed them to get elected, was just something that, that Robinson could not abide by. When Barry Goldwater comes in a, a few years later, comes into the Republican uh, scene, well, Jackie Dadder, he's not going to support Barry Goldwater and, and the things that, that he put forth and believed in. So he went, he went, he did shift parties, and he, of course, worked for Governor uh, Rockefeller, a Republican for, for many years. And with your you're referencing Martin Luther King, Jackie, again, he was not afraid to disagree if he disagreed. So he worked very closely with Dr. King, admired him tremendously. Um, and at the same time, when Dr. King came out and spoke against the Vietnam War, Robinson was said, no, I think you're wrong. I think that, you know, we need to fight communism there. This is a, he believed in the fight. Um, and he wasn't afraid to say that. He always, when he was with Dr. King or Adam Clayton Powell or Dwight Eisenhower or the president, Jackie was always respectful of the other person, but he was also didn't sit down and, and say, hey, you maybe have more power influence than me in this area. So I'm not going to have an opinion. No, he'd have his opinion and make it known. As you detailed some of the things about 1972 and some of the events he had traveled to, and it was clear that his, his physical condition had deteriorated. Um, he died at 53, which it's it's unbelievable to think about how young that is, um, the influence he had, and the thing that, and you, I'm glad you touched on this, because as I'm reading all this, I'm thinking, there's a thought in my head, and you touched on it later, what if he had just lived another 20 years, okay, if he lives until 1992 and dies at 73 and not 53, think of the things that he had seen and what kind of impact he might have been. He would have been alive to see Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's record. Or, you know, as more globally, the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles and the verdict there and everything that happened there. You know, his voice in Los Angeles specifically, um, imagining just what kind of an impact and influence he could have had given his passion for staying active and what he could have been involved in if he had just lived even 10 or 15 or 20 years longer. 
Yeah, I mean, there's every reason to think he would have been very involved and 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 outspoken. So you're absolutely right. He would have seen a lot more. And he had just gotten back into baseball in 72, the year that he would die earlier that year. He spent about 15 years completely distanced from the game. Not quite as strange, but distanced from the game. Um, and now he came back in and was, you know, on the field at Dodger Stadium, famously on the field of the World Series. So does every reason to expect he would have been more involved in the game. The other thing that Robinson did, in addition to using his celebrity to have a voice, he also worked very much on the ground. He was very aware of and interested in, as, as many other civil rights, rights leaders were, in uh, economic empowerment. So he had the Freedom National Bank, which was a Black-owned and run bank in, uh, in Harlem. Uh, in the year of his death, he was working on a low-income housing project with a, the Jack Robinson Construction Company. So there's every reason to think that he would have continued to have influence both publicly and on the ground in terms of, of getting people's jobs and, and creating influence that way. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Baseball season is heating up. Odyssey has you covered with the most entertaining coverage of your team. Stay locked in and in the know with the local voices you trust as they bring you unfiltered takes, recap games, react to the latest team news, and talk to callers. Listen to your favorite shows for free on the Odyssey app, odyssey.com, your smart speaker, or in the car with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. I think one of the other interesting things here, and um, <laughs> I think you write it very well because the fully idea didn't really crystallize to me until I was done with the book, but you talk to people who grew up watching Jackie Robinson play and you see where they became later in life. And all of a sudden the idea just kind of falls into place that you have children from the of the 40s and 50s who were young adults in the 60s and watching the civil rights movement. And then, then they became adults and leaders in, in business and in political worlds and everything else in the 70s and 80s. These are the guys who you can trace their direct influence to growing up, watching Jackie Robinson and seeing what they did with that, the lessons they learned as a kid, they took with them through their rest of their lives and how it influenced them. Yeah, there's no question. I and, mean, you know, we think about today, we you talked at the top a little bit about how, hey, a new generation of people can read and learn about Jackie. And that's true. Um, and we can teach things in school and we hopefully do and try to do the best job we can as a society to educate people. There, there's nothing that can take the place of or not a lot 
to just imagine being in Ebbets Field in 1949, even if you're in the North, which is not segregated, essentially in Brooklyn and, and in the city in those days, there were, you know, there were the Italian neighborhood, there was sort of the Jewish neighborhood. There was, you, you, it's not as if you were, you were encountering and, and, and with people of color during the day. So you go to, go to Ebbets Field and now there's a white family and a black family next to each other. And you're all cheering. You're cheering for Jackie. You're also cheering for Pee Wee Reese and Duke Snyder and Roy Campanella. You're cheering for the Dodgers. You have a common purpose. Um, and that unites. And I think a lot of these players just, they would watch Jackie. When I say these players, these, these young kids, 9, 10, 12, 13 years old, who are playing baseball in the Sandlot or on their Little League team, wherever they're playing, their high school team. They're seeing Jackie. What a great player. What a game-changing player. And it's almost, nobody's colorblind. That's a ridiculous thing to say, but, but it's almost as if it doesn't matter, right? You just, you love the baseball player and, and that teaches you so much. Uh, the last thing on this was, was and I spoke to, to kids who would say, so there they are in Brooklyn and segregation doesn't exist there, even though we just said self-segregation. It's also not taught in school. And there's Red Barber saying, when they go to St. Louis, hey, you know, Jackie and, later Campanella or Gilliam or, or Newcomb, they had to stay in this other hotel while we were here and, and the rest of the players had to chase and chase hotel in, in St. Louis. And that just gave kids such a window, such an understanding. What do you mean? That's my guy. How are you going to treat him that way? Honestly, they might've been upset if it was Duke Snyder they were doing that to. Like they love the guy. Yeah. And um, same with, you know, I spoke to an old Giants fan who was like, I hated Jackie Robinson. Couldn't care if he was black or white. He killed us. You know, <laughs> same guy who loves loves Willie Mays. So when you have these kids who are simply being given this environment, that's that's where it unfolds, and you see their growth as they become, as you're pointing out now, and they're in their 20s and the 60s. They become leaders in the 70s and 80s, and go on to have real careers. Many of them in civil rights, civil rights attorneys, things like that. My thanks to Kostya Kennedy. His book, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, is available now from St. Martin's Press. It is a truly illuminating look at one of the most important figures in American history. Hey, if you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Odyssey and Apple Podcasts. You can check out some great conversations ranging from my chat with Olympic speed skating hopeful turned Major League All-Star Lee Mazzilli to my talk with screenwriter Andrew Bergman, the mind behind such comedy classics as Blazing Saddles, Fletch, and many more. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.